Luke chapter 4, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the time to be uh, moving through the book of Luke and to be seeing uh, the work of your Son Lord, here upon the earth and really to come at it again, maybe even with fresh eyes, uh, just kind of placing ourselves into those circumstances and what would it be like and uh, the things that these guys were learning of you and observing of you. and um, Lord, and just uh, for us, just kind of falling back in love with you again and uh, maybe even discovering you in a fresh way. And couple that with uh, just all the new things we learn every time we go through the Word and uh, how you, you're using the circumstances we're currently in just to impress certain things upon our hearts. And So Lord, tonight we ask that you would teach us, that you would bless your Word, and that uh, you would work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 4. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan... <laughs> And he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil took him to Jerusalem to set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So, when we were looking at Luke chapter 3, one of the things that we saw is that as Jesus was preparing to begin his earthly ministry, one of the first things that he did was went and was baptized. Now, John, you may recall, when he was talking about baptism, he talked about it being this act of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is uh, coming, or it's at hand, um, and be baptized for your sins, and so on. And then Jesus went to be baptized. And we said, well, why would Jesus go be baptized? We know that Jesus was without sin. The scripture makes that very clear. Um, So why would he go? And one of the points that we made was that Jesus was identifying with the sinners that he was about uh, to do his ministry amongst. And so that's why he went out to the baptism. Well, similarly here, Jesus is going to identify with the sinners that he's going to be ministering amongst by going out into the wilderness and being tempted. Now, there's some question about, was Jesus really tempted? Sure, the devil was tempting, but was Jesus really tempted by those temptations Or wasn't he? Uh, And some will say, well, Jesus, because of his divinity, really couldn't be tempted by these things. They would just sort of be trinkets that are out there. Yeah, but Jesus was a man. Yes, he was a man, but he didn't sacrifice his divinity to become a man, this and that. Um, So there is some discussion and some debate as to whether these things really um, were that tough for Jesus to avoid uh, necessarily. I think the main point that we we can get out of this as to why Jesus went into the wilderness is how he handled the temptation. Because as fully God, at any time, he could have just struck 
the devil down, right? Lightning bolts, get out of here. I don't need that from you, sort of thing. I'm, I'm hungry anyway. You're getting on my nerves, kind of thing. And just ended it like that. But would that have been an example for us? Do you have the power of lightning bolt? No, I don't have that power. And so we could never just shoot down lightning bolts to get rid of the devil. So I think a great thing that we're going to see tonight is the way in which Jesus dealt with these temptations is a model and an example for us who are going to face temptations. Another point that I want to draw out, and I will as we we get in here, uh, is that Jesus wasn't in the wrong by being tempted. And so we need to be careful with this, I'm a horrible, lousy person. I can't believe these temptations come against me. All right, The temptations, uh, in, being tempted in and of itself isn't wrong. We see that it happens to lots of godly men and women. Um, what you do with it certainly can define whether it's going to be right or wrong in your particular life. So we'll look at that. And also, the things that Jesus was tempted by are not necessarily sinful things. And I think that'll be an interesting thing to consider as well. So that's a few things that I want to consider with just this opening section here. Let's go back and look at it. It says, now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Remember, the Jordan is where he was baptized. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, Jesus was always full of the Spirit uh, in that sense, uh, or in that term. But the idea is now that the Holy Spirit is driving him. Mark actually mentions this uh, just very briefly in his book, his gospel, and he said that Jesus was driven into the wilderness. Now, the wilder- in the wilderness was all the difficulties and all the troubles, right? But notice the Spirit led him into that. And so sometimes we look at our lives and difficulties and troubles will come upon us and we'll think, God, you've abandoned me. But in this instance here, we're seeing that God drove him into that particular place, that it was, this was in his will, the Lord's will. And it says he was led there, he was in the wilderness, uh, no, I think of the wilderness as like evergreen trees. The wilderness in the Bible is more like deserty, rocky area. So it drove him into the wilderness, and it says there he was tempted by the devil. I think sometimes we read it and we think, okay, so 40 days, not so bad. 39 days, not so bad. 40th day, look out. Satan unleashed it. Uh, the way this is worded is that the temptations were coming throughout. All right, And then we have a glimpse here at this final one. And it says, and, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Right? So he's, he had no food. I, I don't think I read that. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, you might think, duh, of course he was hungry here. But there, there's actually a process that goes on that, you know, if you don't eat for a meal, me in my case, I don't eat for like an hour. I'm, I'm getting a little hungry, you know, this sort of thing. You know, then you don't eat for a day. And, or two days and three days, you think, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die here. And then, and I've never gone that past that length of time, um, then suddenly you don't feel hungry anymore, they say. I'm not going to test it out and try it, but <laughs> they say you really don't feel hungry anymore. And your body starts to kind of feed on itself, but then you get to a point again where you feel that hunger again. And that's sort of like a warning. If you don't eat, you're going to die. You know, um, Your body is almost telling you that. And so it seems that that's the place now that Jesus is at. And so it says, when, when they were ended, he was hungry. And it's at that point that the devil will come and give us these particular temptations that we're going to see. You know, you, you might think if the devil was a generous fella, that he would say, well, you know, Jesus is having a tough time. I think I'll lay off him a little bit, you know, until he, or like I heard one person say, uh, you know, it's not really a fair fight. 
he's hurting, he's tired, he's hungry. Um, but notice that the devil isn't gracious like that or kind like that. That he will pour it all on us here. And so for us, there are times when we are at the end of 40 days, so to speak, and we're down and we're hurting and we're struggling and we're hungry and weak and all these things. Know that an attack is likely going to come during that time and to be on your guard for that. All right? Don't be surprised that it has come. Be on your guard for that. So the devil comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God. Now, the word if there, if for us means maybe, maybe not, not sure. You know, Satan's like, why don't you just prove to me if you are. Different word is used in the Greek, not really translated. I'm not sure any of our versions have it. Um, it's the word since. So Satan knows that Jesus is the son of God. And that's really how it should be translated. Since you're the son of God, prove it. Show me that you're the son of God. Show everybody else you're the son of God. Also notice he says, since you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now there's some aspects that are assumed um, or implied, maybe is a better word, in that sentence there. And that is this, you're the son of God. You shouldn't have to be hungry. You shouldn't have to want for anything. You shouldn't be going through struggles or difficulties. Have you ever thought that or said that even about yourself? God, I'm your child. Why is it working out this way? Why aren't you answering my prayer? Why am I going through these difficulties, these struggles? You know, so perhaps that's Satan himself. Probably Satan's not bothering you. Um, One of his demons is more likely uh, dispensed to you. But right from the pit of hell are those thoughts that come into our minds that are saying, God owes you more. You deserve better. And since you're the son of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. Go ahead and make these stones into bread. Now we know Jesus has the ability to do that sort of a thing. And we see through the scriptures, we see later on in the gospels where Jesus could turn five loaves and two fish into to feed 5,000 people. Um, we see in the Old Testament where they... Uh, the children of Israel fed manna, this bread-like thing, if you will, and they were able to survive on that for years and years and years. So certainly Jesus could do that sort of thing. But notice Jesus answers him. Doesn't get into whether he would or wouldn't. Jesus answers, and he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So, I'm okay, he's saying here. I'm surviving without this food. Um, notice he says, It is written. Well, where was it written? Uh, well, you know, Reader's Digest told me, man should not live by bread alone. Or I read in the paper, man should not live by bread alone. Or some, in, then the big guru that is out there at this time. Jesus went back to the word of God. And, and here I want to show you, this is where I think is the pattern and the example that Jesus is setting for us. Because temptations are going to come against us. Even when we're doing great in the Lord. And we're loving the Lord and we're serving the Lord and we're just blessed to be in relationship with him. Temptations are going to come against us. They came against Jesus. And Jesus models for us two things that you need to have to overcome temptation. Number one is to be filled with the Spirit. Remember it says that in the beginning, Jesus was filled with Spirit and driven into the wilderness. The one is to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Very simply, it's nothing like weird or peculiar or okay, well how do I do that? Do I have to go somewhere and have some ceremony to be filled with the Spirit. When you yield your life to God's leading, that's the filling of the Spirit. And as you yield, He fills you. And so, as you're, Father, I just want to obey you. I want to love you. I want to honor you. You're filled with the Spirit. 
temptations may come. Notice the second thing that Jesus does then is he goes to the Word of God. You see, because they're the messages that are coming into his life, whether they're from Satan or they're from the TV box or they're from your group of friends you know, that are saying certain things, the messages are going to come and they're going to get you to doubt God's goodness and they're going to uh, encourage you to satisfy your own needs and all these other things. And so Jesus says, you know what, I know all the messages that are out there, but it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. I'm not going to turn those stones into bread. Second thing comes on, and the devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. There's a tradition in Israel that this is um, just outside of uh, Israel, uh, overlooking the city of Jericho, overlooking the Dead Sea, um, not the Dead Sea, the uh, Jordan River there, uh, that that's where he took him. It's this high mountain. They call it the Mount of Temptation. Did we go up there? We did. We did. It's very nice, wasn't it? It's got a very nice monastery. It has a, the and it's road. got a coffee bar up there now. We Building had, the we side of the road. There. We did? Yeah. Oh, down on the yeah. bottom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. So that's a tradition that this is where Satan brought Jesus. Uh, it seems to me that this is more of a spiritual type of a thing <laughs> where somehow... Satan was able to open up things so Jesus could see all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time. All right? And probably not just those that existed then, but all that have ever and ever will exist. And essentially, Satan says to Jesus, all of this can be yours. Now, I find this to be quite interesting. Some would look at this and say, what a liar. To tell God you know, that he could have all the kingdoms. Satan doesn't have that right. But the reality is Satan does have that authority and that right. It's a temporary authority and right. And it was given to him by Adam and Eve. Now, you remember Adam and Eve, um, initially Adam, when the Lord uh, created Adam, he said, this is you know, yours, uh, be fruitful, multiply, subdue this, and so on. You're, you're the king of this earth, so to speak. Uh, and then when, he, when Adam, when Eve, they decided to give in to that temptation, same idea of temptation, we'll talk about it, when they decided to give in to that, in a sense, they gave the title deed to planet earth over to Satan. He, Scripture says in a few different places, he became the God of this world. He became the ruling authority of this world. Revelation chapter 5, I think, is very interesting because there uh, you have this scene where John is looking at everything and he starts to weep and cry because there is this scroll in the hand there of, uh, I forget if it's the father or the son or whatever, but there's this scroll that is there in his hand and it says, and I wept because nobody was able to open the scroll. Now we know from the story that when the scroll is opened up, it becomes all these judgments and so on. But there have been those that suggest those judgments are designed uh, for the purpose of reclaiming the title deed. So that this scroll itself, if you will, is the title deed to planet Earth. And that when Jesus came to this world and he died, we know that the Lord is one day going to restore all things to the way they're supposed to be. We call that the millennial kingdom and beyond. And so Jesus will eventually possess the title deed to this whole world. But there's a process that he's going to have to go through to get there, right? And that process, the roadblock in the, in the middle of that or in between that was the cross. Now here's Satan coming along and saying, you know what? You don't have to go to the cross. You can skip that whole process if you want. If you would just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the title deed. I'm in charge of it. I can give it to whoever I want. I'll give it to you. And so you can skip that whole process of the cross. Well, we're glad Jesus didn't. Notice he says, 
it is written, again, he goes back to the Word of God. Uh, this time he goes to Deuteronomy 6. The first time he went to Deuteronomy 8. Um, it says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so again, here is the devil offering a legitimate thing to the Lord. He is supposed to be the rightful possessor of uh, the deed to the earth. He is to eat and to have the bread and so on. So Satan is offering a legitimate desire. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with this temptation, but how to fulfill or uh, satisfy that desire is wrong. That's really what Satan is coming and tempting him with. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to worship you and deny the word of God, which says you shall worship the Lord your God and him only serve. And then verse 9 he says, So then he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, so the, sort of the high point of the temple, and he said, If, or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Do a grand miracle. Everyone will be gathered in Jerusalem. You'll climb up to the top of it. Josephus, uh, who was a historian from the first century, um, so we, we learn a lot about what was going on during the times of Jesus from Josephus. He writes that there was sort of this uh, legend that was kind of going around. And what the legend was is that the Messiah would come to the temple and do some grand miraculous thing. And everyone would know, that's the Messiah. Well, this is pretty grand and miraculous. Climb yourself up to the top of the pinnacle. Everybody wonder what you're doing. And then jump off and then walk away. And everyone will be uh, amazed at uh, who you are. So he throws this temptation out there. And then he, then this is, I think, fascinating. Notice what Satan does here. Satan quotes the Bible. And he says, for it is written, you like to use that phrase, Jesus, I can use it too. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And another place it says, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. That's Psalm 91. So Satan now quoting the scripture. And so the temptation comes to Jesus there. It seems that Satan has a pretty good argument here. He's taking the scripture. But notice what Jesus says in verse 12. And Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so what Jesus does here is very, very important to us because Temptations that will come against us will oftentimes sound very good, look very good, and sometimes even seem to come from the Bible itself. And quite honestly, you can take any passage you want, or excuse me, you can take any idea that you want and find something out of context in the Bible to make it sound reasonable and good. Cults, for instance, uh, do that, where they will take an idea from the Bible twist it around just enough so it, it you know i guess so that it does sound right but twist it around just enough so that it's no longer a biblical idea anymore a biblical concept even though the words themselves or parts of the words themselves may be found in the bible and what what satan is doing here is he's taking the word of god out of context and applying it to jesus's life to get jesus to do something a temptation that wasn't in the will of god so jesus now goes back to the word of God, and he says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this, I think, is a very important point in our study of the word. Acts chapter 20, uh, it commends the disciples, Paul in particular, and it says that Paul did not, um, 
he was not negligent in bringing the whole counsel of God, the entire counsel of God. So he taught them all of the word. And I, it's part of the reason the philosophy of Calvary Chapel ministry is to go verse by verse through the scriptures, and I'm sure other churches do it as well, but to go verse by verse through the scripture so that we are able to say, at some point, it'll take a little while, but at some point able to say, we have given you the whole counsel of God. You know, Chuck Smith just passed away after 60-some years of ministry, I think it was. Went through the Bible cover to cover seven times for the congregation at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I wonder how many of those people heard all of it. Um, I don't know how many lasted as long as he did. But he, he, he could die literally and say, I'm confident. I gave the congregation God entrusted to me the entire counsel of God. We did some math and figuring out how long it would take us to teach through the whole Bible if we just did like a chapter a week. And we figured it would take us on Sunday mornings 30 years to go through the whole Bible at the pace of about a chapter a week. And that was part of our inclination to add a Wednesday night study so we could get that down to 15 <laughs> years. Um, I don't know if I'll make it 30 years or so. So anyhow, uh, the whole counsel of God, that's one thing. And then also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing a letter to his young protege, Timothy, and he, he exhorts Timothy to make sure that Timothy rightly divides the word of truth. <coughs> That is, don't just take parts of it. Don't take stuff out of context. Don't twist things to say what you want them to say. You know, I've heard people say, do like Bible studies and stuff, and their, their interpretation and everything is way off. But the general idea is, it's a reasonable idea. Okay, that's a good idea. I guess nothing really wrong with that. But they've, they've twisted the word to get to a point. And whether the general idea is good or not, that's a dangerous place to go, wouldn't you agree? And so we want to rightly divide the word of truth, the whole counsel of God. So Jesus says to Satan, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. And Jesus had won the battle and no temptations would ever come against him again. It says, until an opportune time. Now I think that's important for us is, you know, we have our victories, you know, we're struggling with a temptation or whatever, and we have our particular victory, and sometimes I, we think, great, now I don't really have to be on my guard anymore, I've won those victories or that victory. The reality is these things come back at us again and again and again. And the devil here knows the more opportune times. Now you probably know in your life when you're more susceptible to a temptation. You know, for some of us, we're a little bit tired. And it's when we're a little bit tired. Some of us, it's when we're alone, as opposed to when a whole bunch of people are around. So you know the circumstances. Be on your guard. The devil knows them too. And he's going to come and, and seek to bring you down. And so uh, when that happens, submit yourself to the will of the Lord. Yield your life over to him. Always be yielding your life over to him so that you're walking in the spirit, being filled with the spirit. And then secondly, come back at him with the word, which means... You need to know the word, right? Be a student of the word. He said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. We go back to bread quite often, three times a day. You know, we go back to food. Uh, the word of God needs to be that source of sustenance in your life as well. And so go, get back to it, get into it. Uh, you may also want to pick up little books, Jim, I'll tell you. Um, but little things like Bible promise books. 
I think are helpful, particularly when they break it down by topic. Um, you know, so when you're feeling tempted, I had six scripture verses there for that particular thing, or when you're sad, you know, five more verses or whatever. And, you know, look through them, read through them, memorize those verses, or at the very least know that book has a bunch of verses on when I'm angry. So when you get angry, you go to your bookshelf and you quickly take in the word of God on that particular topic. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, Bill runs our, or I mean, uh, what's your name? Jim runs our <laughs> bookstore. Bill and I are great friends. Great friends. Yeah. All right. <laughs> what's that, Mark? You think there's an aspect there? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that he didn't cease to be God, but he put that, like in Philippians, it's like that he did not, he didn't think that, you know, equality got something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Not meaning that he, that he was no longer God and man, but he let that part not be expressed or. Uh, yeah. Which is why he was hungry. Which is why later on he falls asleep in the back of the boat. Right. So uh, so you're saying, so which is why more, he was tempted? It's more, even more of a thing that uh, he was identifying in the, in the sense of putting away his deity, in a sense, so that he could even identify with us even more in, in the way that he lived out his life. I'm not inclined to think that. In in the sense of the temptation aspect of where who he was just on the edge and could have given in at any moment. Oh no, I wasn't. I wasn't going there. Oh okay. But I was going that his body was able to be tempted in all those ways. I definitely think hungry. he was really hungry. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. That's what that's what I was trying to paint it in the. And I read a couple of guys today that thought this and a couple that thought that. Right. So I'm I'm not sure. Um, but I do know this, Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right. So it isn't like he cheated, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, so when I read that, right. I tend to think, you know, and I, I shared this once before, it's like, if you came and put like a bowl of shrimp in front of me, <laughs> I love shrimp, you know, cocktail sauce and all that, if you put that in front of me, and said, look, don't eat any of it, that would be a temptation. I'll just take one kind of thing. You know, you put a bunch of worms in front of me or something and <laughs> said, don't eat it, no problem. I wouldn't be tempted by that, you know what I mean? Um, I think the debate is, was shrimp or worms in front of the Lord? And was he really tempted by this? Was he ever really inclined to go toward it or not? Um, as I read 4.15, I, I tend to think shrimp was there, you know? Um, so I, I don't know though for certain. I'm not yeah, sure. like you said before, the, the model of like he, he allowed it to happen so it could be a model for us. Yeah, I think that's the gist. Good, but it wasn't a fake temptation. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I don't right, think no, so. Legit, he didn't absolutely. cheat by using a little bit of his gut. Right. Absolutely, right. absolutely, and and Jesus didn't use miracles. <laughs> Uh, in the, we don't see anywhere in the scriptures. You know, there are some that are called the Gnostic Gospels, um, which weren't even written. They were written hundreds of years after any of the disciples lived. But the so-called Gnostic Gospels, um, they write that you know Jesus had the birds come and land on his hands, and you know all kinds of peculiar, weird things. We don't see anything like that in the scriptures. That Jesus didn't use miracles for his own gain, you know, he didn't have to get up to sharpen a pencil, he just, you know, <laughs> he didn't do stuff like that for his own gain, he got up and sharpened the pencil. Um, 
and so on. So uh, anyway, moving on to verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Remember, uh, he went out in the power of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Mark says, driven by the Spirit. Here now he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And, and again, I see this for us is we can be strengthened by temptations. That temptations and our victory over those temptations uh, can be good for us as they bring us forth. And they say, you know what? I can handle this. I was thinking of this recently. Um, as my wife and I, as we were dating, the Lord impressed upon our hearts things having to do with purity. And, and honoring him with our lives and with our bodies and all these sorts of things before we were married. And we were dealing with temptations, needless to say. Maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago or whatever, I, was, well, I remember I was walking up my driveway to get the newspaper. And I've been married for, at that time, about 15 years or so. And it hit me, the temptations I learned to deal with then strengthened me and enabled me and enabled me to face temptations, different temptations certainly, now but at one point in my life they were the strongest possible temptations that were out there and the lord gave me victory over those praise the lord and similarly to now i'm strengthened to face other temptations that may come my way does that make sense and so some strength temptations can strengthen us so he goes power of the spirit to galilee and people start talking now galilee remember is the northern region of israel um i i read somewhere today that there was some three million people that lived in that area. Lots of little towns and villages. Um, so it wasn't like New York City, but lots of little towns and villages. Some three million people lived up in that Galilee region. That's where Jesus does the almost all of his ministry that you read in the Gospels. Except for when he goes down to Jerusalem for feasts and stuff like that. Uh, everything is really happening up in the Galilee region there. It says that a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And that just simply means people were like, this guy's great. You know, this, he's excellent. I love what he has to say when he comes. Now, it wasn't uncommon. Synagogues is where they would go to uh, worship. Uh, synagogue service there was not much different from what we do here on Wednesday night or even a Sunday morning. You might come in, you would uh, sing a song or two. Um, sort of the leader of the synagogue would come and he would maybe say a prayer or something like that. Then they would read from the word um, and then they would, uh, he would talk about it uh, a little bit. What was also common was if there was a rabbi come into town that uh, he would be invited. Would you like to read something, say something you know, to the congregation? And so it seems that's what's happening with Jesus, that he's coming in and they're saying, is there something you want to read, something you want to say? We're going to see... Uh, small town. Well, there was certain outfits. Um, so that could be something. Jesus really didn't wear that necessarily, though. Uh, some of it could be people were trailing behind him. You know, disciples uh, would be doing that. Um, I think... No, I don't think here. saw him when he was young, too, in the temple. Oh, yeah, that's right. So maybe some of those people that saw him in the temple during the feast were living in those areas up there, and they said, this guy really... That's that kid. Yeah. Why is that guy a kid? It's a relatively small area, though. And, you know, you're kind of from out of town, got to go, what do you do? Well, I, I walk around and I teach. All right, would you like to say something? Um, so, anyway, they open this floor to him. So then, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth. Now, we know about Nazareth, right? 
Nazareth was where he uh, grew up from about the age of two. Nothing good comes from from Nazareth, we're told. Uh, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Uh, Now remember the Jews uh, practiced uh, on Saturdays. That's where they went and they worshipped. That's called the Sabbath day of rest um, for the Jews. Um, As was his custom. Isn't that something? If there was anyone who didn't need church, it would be Jesus, right? And yet he made it his custom to go uh, to church. And I I think it's important. You know, sometimes we think, I'm doing great. You know, I don't need my pick-me-up this week. You need your pick-me-up. You you do need to be with the body of believers. You need to be taking in uh, the word of God and fellowshipping and hearing God speak to the congregation of people. So Jesus made it his custom, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, he didn't just interrupt things. Uh, He was likely invited to come read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So in that day, no books, scrolls, um, hand copied. Uh, each synagogue, uh, one of the, the things to become a synagogue was to have uh, the scrolls of the scriptures, as much of the scriptures as they could. Um, and you would have one for each of these books of the prophets and so on. And so it seems that Jesus said, hey, can you get Isaiah? They get it. And they begin to unroll it. Now, no chapters, no verses in the Bible uh, back then. That was put in later on for convenience sake. Um, but it was certainly in order. And Jesus is going to read from Isaiah 61. That's a lot of pages that have to be unraveled here. And so you can just picture sort of the drama of the thing as, you know, I don't know if there's a table or something that is set up and they, they just begin to sort of unroll this thing and they get all the way almost to the end. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah He's going to read from Isaiah 61, almost to the end of this. And so everyone's like, okay, it's going to be good. Here we go, you know. And kids went to school with Jesus. This is his town, you know. And hey, what's he going to say? Is he going to be any good at this, you know, kind of thing. But reports were going around that he's good at this talking thing. Remember it said in verse 15. And so anticipation, I suspect, is building. So you said he asked for it. The verb here says was given to him. I don't think so. I, I think it was like they, somebody went and got it because they kept it in a back area right. and brought it to them. Didn't they do things like in a regular order through the year? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Maybe. Um, my commentary here says that um, from what is known about synagogue services of that area, the reading from the Mosaic Law was usually prescribed while the person chosen to read from the books of the huh. prophets had the latitude to choose any passage yeah. he wished. That's great. All right. So, apparently Jesus had latitude. He picks Isaiah, and he re- it says they un- he unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it goes on and says he shut the book. Or he rolled up the scroll. Now, that uh, is from Isaiah chapter 61. Um, I forget the exact verses. Uh, but it's from Isaiah 61. And it is a clear messianic psalm. All the people that were sitting in that room would say, oh, this is about the Messiah. Now they're going to sit and they're going to wait. And he's going to probably talk about, you know, guys, there's going to come a day when the Messiah will come and we'll throw off Roman rule and everything will be great and wonderful. You know, they're anticipating, 
what's he going to say about this? I don't think they're anticipating these next couple of words because he says, he rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. Now, in the synagogues, the, um, the audience stood, <coughs> the teacher sat. Um, you know, on Sunday, for instance, the teacher stands and, and the audience uh, sits here. And so when Jesus sat down, it didn't mean he went and sat down in his normal spot again where everybody else was, but that he sat down prepared to talk about what he just read. So he hands the book back. It says, all of the eyes uh, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed to him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled. That's akin to saying, I'm the Messiah. This passage that everybody knows, the messianic passage, is about me. The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. So then he went on to teach a little bit more. And it says, and all spoke well of him and he marveled at the gracious words or the words of grace that were coming from his mouth. Jesus was teaching in such a way that their jaws dropped. They, they walked out of there and they were like, I never heard any, any teaching like that. That was awesome. I don't know if this guy is the Messiah or not, but that was awesome what he had, and, and they were just really blessed by it. But then they began to kind of question, all right, yeah, the teaching was fabulous, you know, and certainly he's a, he's a good teacher and all that, you know, but he said that he's the Messiah. Isn't this, notice, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, because remember, he's in his town. I remember Joseph was the man raising him as his father. Verse 23, um, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal, your, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus is seeing what, what's going on. He's watching people whispering You know, in his deity. He knows what they're talking about. In his humanity, he can hear the whispering that is going on there. Uh, and so he interjects. Look, I know what you guys are thinking. I know what you're saying. And I know you're going to say to me, hey, man, do some great sign. Do some miracle. Uh, let's see what you got kind of thing. Prove uh, to us uh, with miracles that you are this Messiah. And verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So it's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I could, I could do a gazillion miracles and you're not going to accept me. No prophet is uh, accepted in his hometown. And then he goes on and gives examples of that. So he says in verse 25, In truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of those widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now that's found in 1 Kings chapter 17. And the point is this. Uh, Jesus is saying, look, you folks in Nazareth, you're not going to accept me. I'm here from Nazareth. I know how it works. You don't, nobody accepts a prophet from his own town. In the very same way that the, the widows of Israel, the people of Israel, they didn't accept Elijah the prophet. So he had to go outside of Israel to find a Gentile woman and do this miraculous healing there. And so what's Jesus doing? He's commending, if you will, the Gentiles to these people. Now the Jews had a view of Gentiles that was very, very low. Um, they were the lowest of the earth. And thank God I am not a Gentile was one of the prayers of the Jewish people as they began their day each day. 
And so for Jesus to be commending a Gentile and at the same time kind of rebuking them, you're not going to receive me. I've got to go to the Gentiles to receive me. Well, that's like a slap in the face of these guys. All right? Not a seeker-sensitive service. Uh, if you know what that term means, this idea that don't make anybody feel bad when they leave your service. They'll never want to come back. Uh, sometimes people need to feel bad. They need to be kind of hit a little bit. And so here, Jesus does. Then he goes on to verse 27. And he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That story is found in 2 Kings chapter 7. Now, maybe just as bad as being a Gentile was being a leper. You know, this was an outcast type of disease uh, that your life was pretty much over if you got it kind of thing. And now Jesus is commending a Gentile ruling, ruling leper here. And again, they're willing to receive, you aren't. Verse 28, And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And again, what was it that made him so mad? Jesus was basically saying, you're not going to get it. And people that you think so lowly of, they will. And so they're filled with this wrath and this anger. Who does this guy think he is? We played kickball together, dude, in like elementary school, and you stunk at kickball. And now you think you're this great messiah. You come here and you say all these things and you offend us. And so on and so forth. And so they're filled with wrath. Verse 29, and they rose up. I don't know if Jesus stunk at kickball, by the way. Uh, they rose up and drove him out of the town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So that they could throw him down the cliff. How terrible. This was his first sermon in his hometown. Um, it didn't go very well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really surprised when we go to Nazareth that there's not a... Everywhere there's some holy site, you know, like the, there's not some hill or something where they say this is where it happened, but um, I'm sure they could. So they're going to throw him off the cliff. Now they wanted a miracle. Here's the miracle. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Now, I don't know if this was a miracle where they, they, they all froze in place or something and they couldn't do anything or if more of a natural where Jesus sort of just gave him a look or, or what it was, but something stopped them. And Jesus wasn't going to die by being thrown off of a cliff. Um, the general idea, it may not even be like a big cliff, but it may be like down into a ravine of sorts, and then they would stone him. Um, that's probably what was about to happen here. But that's not going to be the way Jesus dies. Jesus will die on a cross. And so Jesus just walks out of the, the circumstance uh, in one way or another. It seems to me somehow miraculous here, but maybe there's a natural explanation for it as well. Well, we move on to verse 31. This doesn't necessarily mean it happened the next day um, or from that event to this event. Um, but at some point, he goes down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And again, all of these towns that are surrounding Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. There's something about a person that believes the word of God and teaches it that there's something about sitting in that environment or sitting under that and the word having the power to cut our hearts now i think the word of god can have the power to cut our hearts whether or not uh, somebody is an awesome teacher or they they believe it or anything like that the word of god in and of itself is powerful but there's something about a person that believes the word of god and teaches it that has the ability to just come and you're like yeah i know 
I agree, that totally resonates with my heart. As opposed to, well, we're not really sure if this is true or that is true, or that may have been true for them, but for us in our culture, that sort of thing, well, I don't know. There's no power in that. Like, why even bother going to that, to be honest with you? It goes on, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Um, in my version, leave us alone, it says in other versions. Um, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So notice, uh, us. So this man has multiple demons uh, possessing him. And they're speaking through this man. And they know who Jesus is. Notice it says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So they know Jesus. Does that mean they're saved? No. The scripture says that even the demons know that God exists. That doesn't mean they're they're saved um, here. But they're aware of who Jesus is. They're aware that he is the Holy One of God, the Anointed One. Uh, the Messiah, but notice Jesus does not want a publicity committee made up of demons. And so he rebukes them, and he says, be silent and come out of him. Um, And when the demon had thrown the man down, of course, they have to hurt him one last time, they throw him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, and they said to one another, so this is a teaching. You know, this is not a normal occurrence. Jesus is teaching the disciples and or the people that were gathering around, and suddenly this demon possessed man comes in. It's like, what is going on? And screaming and yelling at Jesus, and he says, "Knock it off! Come out of him!" And a man is thrown down on the ground, but he's in his right mind now. And like, oh my gosh! So it says, and they said to one another, "Actually, I misread it. I thought it said, I thought it said, what in the world? What in the world? <laughs> you know?" But it says, "What is this word? For with authority and power." Not only does he teach that, but with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And believe me, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. All right? So people began to talk about this kid from Nazareth. This, well, he's a man now, he's 30. This guy from Nazareth. Verse 38 continues similarly. Um, it says, And he arose, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. So we're in the town of Capernaum. Simon, that's uh, who we know as Peter. Um, his name would be changed to sort of reflect the change that God did in his heart. And they entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. Can you come and see if there's something you can do? Okay. Um, notice Luke calls it a high fever. Luke is a doctor. He's aware of these things. And so um, you know, the other ones might say, um, Peter's mother-in-law was sick, you know, but Luke is real specific about it. He says that it was a high fever. Notice also Simon has a mother-in-law, Simon Peter. There's a tradition that Peter was the first Catholic pope, uh, and there's a teaching within Catholicism that the pope and the priest and others, um, they can't marry and stuff like that. Here we see uh, that Peter was married, um, has a mother-in-law. Um, you do whatever you want with that. Um, I don't think you have to get married or don't have to get married. I do think it's a mistake to say you can't get married. I think it's against the scripture. Anyway, verse 39, they say, Jesus, would you come? And so Jesus stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So, I don't know if you've ever been sick, 
and the fever breaks, you know, but you're still exhausted and you're tired or whatever. But she's not only healed of this, but she gets up and she begins to serve now all of the Jesus and all of his friends and Peter and his friends that have come home. She immediately begins to serve. And you never have the doctor come reduce your fever either. No, no. <laughs> That's it's a great mother-in-law. <laughs> that you went and served, all them. Yeah. That is a it's a model mother-in-law. Incredible. Yes. <laughs> now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, you know, so word began to filter. Who knows? Maybe uh, someone ran down to the store to buy a bunch of bread or something. Maybe she did. She's serving them. She went to the grocery store. weren't you just sick? I was. Let me tell you what happened. You know, or. There's a big party going on because Peter's mom, mother-in-law is healthy. So anyway, the word filters out. So all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Well, wouldn't you want them to tell everybody? So more people will follow you, right? No, Jesus did not want these demons uh, to be bearing a testimony on his behalf. You know, it, it would ultimately, it would sort of be, uh, there's a level of inappropriateness to the whole idea. I don't want to be associated with these demons kind of pushing me forward here. Um, in, in the very same way that, you know, if a person is going to be telling people about Jesus and then living a completely opposite life here. There's a contradictory idea there. And, and it's almost like, and sometimes on college campuses, that sort of thing happens. You know, kids are Christians, but, you know, they're at the party and they're drunk and they're doing all sorts of things. And you're like, what are you doing there? Well, I'm, and, yeah, I'm a Christian too. Don't tell people that. You know, and you're messing up the witness here, uh, in a sense. And so Jesus doesn't want these demons proclaiming his name and, and who he is. Yes, sir. It could be also just to not mess up Daniel's prophecy too. What? Uh, what the, give me one. The 70 weeks thing. The timing. Timing. Because doesn't that the make sense? Uh-huh. Because his time had not yet come. Yep. Because his time had not yet come. Yeah, that's good. Good point. All right, now 42. And when it was day, he departed. So he spent the night there, and he went into a desolate place. Now, um, other places in the scripture, when it says when it was day, this isn't like 10 in the morning. This is like the, the morning is just starting to break or whatever. Um, when it was day, he went into a desolate place. And the people sought him, and they came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said, I must go preach the good news elsewhere. So Jesus goes to a desolate place. Why? He goes to pray. He goes to a place of solitude so he can get away from the the hustle and the bustle. You've seen his day. You see people are coming all day, bringing people. He's teaching all day. He's doing all things. But he goes to a place of solitude to have that time of communion with his Father. And by communion, I mean prayer and and so on interacting in that way with his father again as we said jesus goes to church he felt a need to do it jesus went to the place of solitude he felt a need to do it and if jesus needed those things certainly we do now we all live very busy lives like jesus did you know we see uh, the things that jesus was uh, busy with and all the people that are coming around him but he knew that he needed it and I'd encourage you, if you don't have that time built in, and I like the pattern Jesus sets by early in the morning, he goes off to a desolate place. I know some people, they like to have their time in the evening before bed or, or something like that, and maybe that works for you. It doesn't work for me. I'm tired at evening, and I just kind of zone off, or I get busy with other stuff, or 
something comes up and I have to run to the Michaels to get something for my kid's project, which is due tomorrow, and suddenly I don't have any more time left or something. So personally for me, it works better first thing in the morning. Um, I do it, and now I know my whole day. And there's no excuse. It's, nothing can come up. And if you get up early enough when it's still dark, people aren't calling you. If you don't turn your computer on, the emails aren't sitting there, and you can just have that time. And Jesus had that time. And you're going to see later, as was his custom, it'll say somewhere. But anyway, they, uh, all the people eventually start gathering. They find him. They wreck his time of solitude. Uh, and they said, you can't leave us. We love you, man. You're the best. He says, no, I got to go. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I wasn't sent to heal. I wasn't sent to feed 5,000 or whatever. I wasn't sent to do all those other things. I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Those other things will come here and there, and they will kind of accentuate what he is doing here. But that's not his primary purpose. His primary purpose was to preach the gospel, the good news of salvation. And then it says, verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, I know some of your versions will say of Galilee there. Um, I'm not sure what the right term is. They're two different places. Um, so there is a discrepancy in the manuscripts. Um, but nonetheless, he was preaching in the synagogues, just as he had done earlier that we had saw. Okay? So that is Luke chapter 4, uh, our study here. Jesus now beginning his ministry. You'll notice um, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says that he calls his first disciples. Uh, people began noticing and observing. Jesus looked out in the crowd and he starts seeing the same faces again and again uh, and things like that. Now he's going to say to them, he's going to put it out there and he say, look, you've been coming for a little while. Are you for real? This is what it's going to mean for you to become my follower. And he's going to put some heavy messages, quite honestly, on those disciples. A lot of people follow the Lord from the distance. There was only a few in the scripture, 120 at one point, that came close by as his disciples. 